I'm grateful to Jason for teaching God's word to us this past week. It is good for you, dear friends, to hear other voices from the pulpit, to see other men up here open the word of God. And I think we can all learn a lot from that study of James. And in an interesting way, the passage in James 3 that we read last Sunday is a perfect match for what we've been studying in the book of Matthew. See, two weeks ago, we saw the Savior remind us that in the kingdom of God, the last shall be first and the first last. There is no room in the church of the living God for his children to scratch and claw to outrank each other. We ought to be grateful to God for the grace that we receive, even as we humbly understand that not one of us deserves the kindness of God. And then last week, we read this from James. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's James 3, 13 to 18. How similar does that sound to the last shall be first and the first last? Again, the Lord shows us in his kingdom. In his church, meekness and gentleness reign. There is no place for you and me to be greedy, self-seeking, or power-hungry. We are to live out godly wisdom. A wisdom in which we are not showing favoritism to the ones who can benefit us the most. To the strong and the wealthy. But in which you and I become peaceable and loving and merciful and reasonable. Those passages, the last shall be first, the first last in that passage from James, they could have been written to go together. Now, we did not plan to put them together because we are not clever enough for that. Trust me, if you saw our elder meetings, you'd know we're not that clever. (laughs) But the Lord has tied together similar lessons for his people to learn. And as we continue on, We're going to see Jesus and those around him continue to illustrate for you and me a very similar point. There's a worldly way to live. And what did we learn about worldly wisdom last week? Worldly wisdom? Bad. Godly wisdom? See, you guys learned Jason's whole sermon right there. Hey, Jason's a proud man right now. But there's a way for us to follow the wisdom of God that... That, that doesn't look like the world, right? There's a worldly wisdom that puts self forward, self-interest forward. There's a way to live in which you care about you and you only use other people for your benefit. That is not godly. That's not the way of God. That's not the way of our Savior. And it must not mark our church. So this morning, here's what I want you to do. Be ready for four points. And we will continue with Jesus in Matthew chapter 20. We will continue with Jesus in Matthew 20. First point, for those of you who are ready to write it down. 
Praise Jesus for walking to the cross. Praise Jesus for walking to the cross. 17 to 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. If you've been following along in our study of the gospel according to Matthew, you might recognize there that verse 17 begins for us a major turning point in this gospel. The first 20 chapters of this gospel have covered for us a period of about three and a half years in the life of Jesus. We've seen the Savior call people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've seen the Savior teach about God's kingdom, heal the sick, cast out demons, feed the hungry, command the weather, and raise the dead. Jesus has proved to us that he is God in the flesh. He has shown us that there's a kingdom to come where he will reign as king over all. Yet, he's also shown us that he has a mission to accomplish Before he ever sits on a throne. Now, as we see Matthew tell us Jesus is headed for Jerusalem, we know he's walking toward the end of his earthly ministry. I've got to confess to you that as I wrote that line down, I had Rocky IV and the final countdown in my head. Sorry about that, but if it's in your head now, I've done my job. We know Jesus is walking toward the end of his earthly ministry, right? The religious leadership in Jerusalem has opposed Jesus at every turn. They've shown that they are unwilling to believe his word. They've shown that they're unwilling to accept the truth of his miracles, even though they're irrefutable. And now Jesus is beginning a march toward the final confrontation. Now Jesus is beginning to walk toward his ultimate purpose in his first coming. And you can almost imagine Jesus, he's crossing the Jordan River out of the region of Perea, near the town of Jericho, pulling the disciples aside to have one last chat, right? Let's have a little conversation here before we move on. It's the season near the time of the Passover, so the roads have been clogged with travelers headed toward Jerusalem. But before things get so crowded... That there is scarcely time for a private word. Jesus again says to his disciples what's about to occur. And if you keep track in Matthew alone, this is at least the third time Jesus has spoken to his disciples with absolute clarity about what he's about to do. Jesus tells the the disciples exactly. And I mean exactly what's about to happen. He's going to Jerusalem. There, Jesus will be delivered over to the Jewish religious leaders, betrayed by a close friend. The Jews will try Jesus and they will sentence him to death because they hate him and they cannot believe he is who he claims to be. But the Jews don't have the political authority to execute someone. By the way, typically the way they would have resolved this is just had a riot and stoned the guy. But Jesus knows that's not going to happen. 
So the Jews will hand Jesus over to the Romans for trial. And he tells his followers he's going to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And that would have been extremely hard to believe for the disciples. I mean, can you imagine the guy that can speak and shut a storm down and calm the waves on a sea? And walk on water and heal the sick and raise the dead? Can you imagine that guy being betrayed, mocked, beaten, crucified? Does that make any sense to you? No. But if that was hard to believe for the disciples, then Jesus tells them something even more spectacular. He promised he would rise from the grave on the third day. He would not remain in the tomb. He would not stay dead. Jesus, even before it happens, promises the crucifixion and the resurrection. And when we read this, we might stop and we might marvel at the supernatural knowledge Jesus had. Because he's God in the flesh. He, he willingly stepped down out of heaven. He, he took upon himself genuine humanity. As a man on earth, Jesus submitted himself to the authority of God the Father. Jesus limited how he would reveal his glory and he did that willingly. He limited how he would display his divine attributes. But in this situation, the Father is clearly allowing Jesus both to know and to communicate exactly the details of what will take place in Jerusalem over the Passover weekend. That's amazing, guys. You and I cannot predict the future with perfect accuracy. True? If we could predict the future with perfect accuracy... We might shut down a few of the hotels in our near beloved city, right? I mean, we could win a lot with absolute perfect accuracy of future prediction. Don't get greedy. We cannot predict the weather with accuracy. If we could, there wouldn't be a percent chance of rain marked on your phone when you look, right? I heard a guy once refer to, he said, you know, a meteorologist is a silly name because who's looking up for meteors, right? I don't see any meteors. Back to you, Bill. Um, but, you know, the guy said, what's the best name for them? Weather guesser? Because that really does feel like what they're doing sometimes, doesn't it? We can't predict the weather with accuracy. We cannot predict the outcome of a sporting event with 100% accuracy. But the Lord Jesus knew exactly where he was going and exactly what would happen when he got there. We should marvel at that. But what is even more amazing, friends, what's more fabulous, what's more worthy of your note, is the fact that Jesus, knowing exactly what he faced, walked on to Jerusalem anyway. That is stunning. Jesus knew he would be betrayed. He knew he would be tried in a mockery of justice. He knew he would be flogged until the skin would hang off his back in tatters. He knew he would be beaten until his face was barely recognized. He knew he would be condemned, forced to carry a cross, and then nailed up naked to die in the sight of a mocking crowd. He knew that on the cross 
He would be punished by God the Father for sins that the Father would forgive. He knew his dead body would be taken down, wrapped up, and buried in a borrowed tomb. He knew that his followers would scatter and hide on Friday through Saturday through Sunday morning. Jesus knew and he still marched resolutely on. He knew and he squared his shoulders and he hardened his resolve and he continued to walk toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, toward the tomb. Jesus knew and he went on anyway. Praise Jesus for walking to the cross. Why? He walked to the cross for the glory of God. He walked to the cross to save sinners. Dear Christian friends, He walked to the cross out of love for you. And please, Don't demean it by making it some vapid general cloud of love that did not know you personally. He walked to the cross to buy you back from the damnation you earned for sinning against God. He walked to the cross, Christian, to die in your place. Thank Jesus. Praise Jesus. Marvel that he chose to walk through the grave for your soul. And if you hear this this morning and you, for whatever reason, are not yet a follower of Jesus, know this. God has commanded all people to repent of their sin and come to Jesus to find mercy. Believe in Jesus. Let go of being the master of your life and follow Jesus. Ask Jesus, Jesus, please forgive me because of your death and your life and your resurrection. Come to Jesus and be saved. And listen to me, friends. If you don't know Jesus, do that today. Pray to God. Believe in Jesus. Turn from sin and be saved. That's God's call. Be saved and you'll join us in praising Jesus for walking to the cross. Second point this morning. Expect to suffer for Christ. Expect to suffer for Christ. Verses uh, 20 to 23. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we're able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. So, all that cross stuff, just let that stick in the back of your mind. And here comes the mother of John and James. And here's something interesting. If you study the accounts of the crucifixion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Some of them tell us that there are women at the cross watching, right? You guys know that's true, right? Do you remember who's at the cross? Well, here's 
two things you find interesting. In Matthew, besides Mary, Jesus' mother, right? Another Mary. In Matthew, Matthew says the mother of John and James was there too. That's kind of interesting, right? You flip to Mark, we get the fact that we have Mary and the other Mary and a lady named Salome. So we can assume that the mother of John and James is Salome. And John, interestingly, refers to the other woman at the cross as the sister of Mary. So it seems like Jesus' aunt has just entered the picture. That would also make John and James first cousins of Jesus. Isn't that kind of fascinating? And I wonder if it's the family ties that give Salome the, the boldness to come to Jesus with this request, right? Because, I mean, she's good. She kneels. She's humble. She asks respectfully. But when Jesus allows this woman to ask what she wants, the request that she has is big and a bit off-putting. Salome asks that John and James be allowed to sit at Jesus right and left in his kingdom. She's asking that her two sons be granted the two highest positions of honor in the kingdom of God. Now... The context of the story is what makes this request feel so strange. Jesus just said at the end of 19, the last will be first and the first will be last. And give that parable at the beginning of 20 saying the last will be first and the first will be last. And Jesus has just said, hey, guys, by the way, I'm going to walk to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer in the most gruesome way that anybody of this day ever suffers. And yet Salome is willing to ask Jesus to grant her sons cushy positions in the kingdom of God. Now, on the one hand, Salome is missing the fact that Jesus did not come with an intent to establish a physical, political, earthly kingdom right now. He's not there to gather an army and overthrow Rome. That's what the religious leaders were expecting the Messiah to do, and that's one of the reasons they were so mad at Jesus for not doing it. But that was never Jesus' plan, not then. Jesus came to earth in this first coming to rescue the children of God by dying on a cross and rising from the grave. Now, Jesus will return to earth one day. He will come back as king. But that is yet to come. Even for us, that's yet to come. The other problem with the request, though, (laughs) Salome and her sons are missing the irony here. Jesus just talked about suffering and laying down his life for others. John and James are sending their mommy to get them high-ranking positions. (laughs) Do you see the contrast? Well, Jesus points out how messed up this request is. And if you notice, who does Jesus answer when he says, when he answers Salome's request? He doesn't answer her. The You, in the Greek, is plural. He's talking to the sons. He's not talking to mom. He's not talking to Aunt Salome here. These boys, these young men, they clearly had a hand in their mother's question. So Jesus asked John and James, you guys think you can drink the cup I've got to drink? Do you think you can suffer as I'm about to suffer? John and James immediately, confidently, foolishly say, sure we can. (laughs) Sure, Jesus, we got it. No problem. We're in. They have no idea. 
Parents, have you ever had your children say to you something that they just know they can do? And you and you just in your head you want to roll your eyes and go, <laughs> No, you can't. <laughs> and you're not gonna come close. I know that they say things like, you know, just dream big enough and you can be anything you want. That's not true. <laughs> I will never be a bus driver no matter how much I want to be. <laughs> I don't want to be, by the way, but I would not. <laughs> but these, these kids, uh, you know, these guys, they have no idea. John and James have no idea what they're facing. They just cannot grasp what Jesus just said. They don't get what Jesus is about to go through. Even though Jesus just said to them what he's about to go through, they're not getting it. And Jesus lets John and James know, you know what, you guys are going to suffer for my sake. James dies the death of a martyr at the command of King Herod in Acts chapter 12. John lives much longer. He suffers exile on the island of Patmos in his old age, around AD 95. Both of these men go through a lot for the sake of the gospel. In a sense, they are going to drink of the cup of suffering. But they will not suffer the infinite horror of paying the price for the sins of other people. But then Jesus tells John and James, even if you do suffer on my behalf, Jesus says he cannot assign to them their places in the kingdom. Jesus has taken on flesh. He has lowered himself, submitting to the rule of the Father. And in doing so, Jesus gave up the authority to determine who's going to be rewarded with what places in the kingdom. Jesus said, it is for those For whom it has been prepared by my Father. This is a clear reference to the fact that God the Father has already determined who's going to sit on Jesus' right and left in the kingdom. The Father has predestined people for those seats. And the Savior is not going to change it. Now, right here we could stop and oh, we could marvel at the sovereignty of God. And we could wonder and philosophize about how predestination works. We could just be amazed as we see the Holy Trinity, right? Here's the Son submitting to the Father, even though the Son and the Father work together in perfect unison and there's still only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our brains go, wow. But why not see maybe one thing for you and me to learn as modern Christians? What did Jesus promise to John and James? They're going to suffer as they follow him. That's what he promised them. At the end of chapter 19, we saw that we may indeed suffer in this life. But we also saw at the end of chapter 19 that heaven will be the reward. As men and women in this fallen world serve the Savior, we have to know suffering is a very real possibility. So expect to suffer for Christ. Listen to me. If you as a Christian think, I won't suffer for Jesus, that takes the iron out of your spine. See, when you think you might get out of suffering, you will fold and run and hide when the potential for suffering comes on the horizon. But if you know that it's coming, you tighten up. You square your shoulders and you lean into it. Because you don't think, 
I can hide from it and run from it. That's the difference. Expect to suffer for Christ. Jesus did not promise just John and James they were going to face hardships as they followed him. In Matthew 10, in John 15, Jesus tells all the disciples to expect, if the world hates me, they're going to hate my followers too. By the way, did the world love Jesus? Does the world love Jesus now? Why do you think they would like you? And by the way, it doesn't matter if we fill a bunch of food bags for the homeless or buy a brand new school building or just say that we agree with every social agenda that they have. The moment we reflect Jesus for real, they're not going to like us anyway. Now, I'm not saying don't fill food bags for the homeless. You should do that. Go serve. Go care. Go be kind. But don't you dare think that you can be nice enough to make the world think you and Jesus are really cool. They hate Jesus, they'll hate his followers. Paul said to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in this age will be persecuted in 2 Timothy 3.12. Hardships are part of following Jesus. Expect them, tighten up, square your shoulders, and deal with it. But don't lose heart. The Savior also told us in chapter 19 at the end, not only may we suffer, God will abundantly more than make up in eternity any hardship we face in the here and now. You can never suffer enough to match how much God's going to repay. Never. So expect it. But don't hide from it. Third point. Seek greatness through sacrifice. Seek greatness through sacrifice. 24 to 28. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even if the Son of Man not came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. By the way, are you surprised in any way that the other disciples are annoyed and maybe even a bit offended at the move John and James just tried to pull off? I think it's especially true because I think we know deep down that the other, the other ten would have made the same power grab if they'd thought to do it. <laughs> Remember that we said this passage ties very closely to what God has been showing us all along. Remember I said that at the beginning? This is like what Jason taught us in James. This is like the end of 19. Here's the topic. James and John have tried to put themselves forward so as to outrank the others. And the others are mad at that ploy. And they're all ignoring everything Jesus just said about his march to the cross. So Jesus responds to the growing conflict with a really important set of reminders here. First, he says to the disciples, it is characteristic of the rulers of the Gentiles to battle for position and rank and power. And by the way, study the life of Pontius Pilate or King Herod and his family and you see how true it is that they, they scrabble and claw to be first. Or study the history of the emperors of Rome. How messed up were the Caesars and their families as they hungered for power? 
Jesus said the rulers of the Gentiles do that. And by the way, he's not making this a Jew-Gentile thing. The point that Jesus is making is that people who are not the people of God are the ones who tend toward power playing and position grabbing. But this should not, must not be so among the children of God. The people of God do not act like this. In verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, It shall not be so among you. Whoever be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Does that not sound like the last shall be first and the first shall be last? Do you want to be great in God's kingdom? Let me ask you that. Think that through. Would you like to be great in the kingdom of God? Yes. I mean, what are you going to say? No. <laughs> I want to be nothing in the kingdom of God. No, want to be great in the kingdom of God. Want that. That's good. How? How can you be great in the kingdom of God? Are you ready? Two words. Serve others. That's how you be great in the kingdom of God. Do you want a high position? you want a good seat? Become the doulos. The slave of others. Do you want to please God so as to show the character of God and the sacrificial love of Jesus? Then let go of what you think your rights are. Let go of any grab for position. Let go of making yourself look like you're important. And instead, make others look more important than you. And in case you wonder if that's something that's a pattern to follow, Jesus illustrates with his own personal sacrifice. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus did not walk this earth 2,000 years ago so that he could dominate others. Instead, he came as a servant. He came to die as a sacrifice for the good of others, others who are lower than him, others who do not rank anywhere near him. Jesus came to lay down his life to rescue people. And if you want to please God, if we want to please God, we will lay down our lives for others in the family of God. You might say, well, we don't do that stuff, Travis. We don't grab for power and position. I mean, we're a small church. There's not many positions to grab for. <laughs> I want to be a big fish in this pond. <laughs> okay. Pretty much being part of this pond makes you a big fish. We're a small church. Nobody here is on a lofty perch. If any of you are sitting around going, I just want to be as powerful as Travis one day. <laughs> As handsome may be, but it's powerful. No. Stop that. Don't laugh at that. Nobody here is on a lofty perch. Nobody's going, man, if I could ever aspire to the position of a Jason Lekowitz, I would be there. But think about this. How do you respond to others in the body? How do you react when people do things that annoy you? you react when things are not done the way you want them to be done even in our little church if you're not careful you by your reaction will show that you value yourself your comfort your opinions your preferences above those of others 
Consider how you feel about other people in the church, by the way. Do you, do you approach others in the church so that you can serve them? Think about this. And don't just limit it to work items. I mean, it's great that y'all help Joe and David carry speakers. I love that. But do you approach people in the church to serve them? What about in friendship, even? Do you, do you when it comes to the issue of friendships and kindnesses in the church, do you expect others to do all the sacrificing in your relationship? Do you expect others to be the ones who check on you? To ask you how you're doing? They have to approach me because I deserve it. Do you expect them to be the ones who genuinely care about you while you do nothing to reach back out to them? That is an attitude of expecting to be served by others without you serving. And that is not Jesus' way. Ask, dear friends. When I deal with others here in the church, do I make others look more important than me? Do I serve? Do I give of myself in acts of kindness, in emotional support, in giving in on issues of preference? Do I expect other people to do for me what I'm not willing to do for other people? By the way, Paul makes the very same point as Jesus here. Don't do it today, but sometime, well, you can do it after service. Go look at Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Watch the word of God call you to consider others more important than yourself. Watch the word of God call you to look to the opinions and preferences of others above your own. Watch the word of God call you to have an attitude like that of Christ Jesus, who was self-sacrificial, who laid down his life for others. And it's because he was so self-sacrificial and laid down his life for others that it says the Father exalted him to the highest place. Seek greatness through sacrifice. And you say to me, well, who am I supposed to serve? Look around this room. Who are you serving in this room? This is your family, folks. This is the people of God. Lay down your life for these people. And don't just leave these people in it. There are people out in the nursery who are watching little ones right now. You know what they're doing? They're sacrificing for the good of others. Maybe you, if you've never served in that capacity, ought to say, hey, I'll jump in. By the way, men, when I say that, don't think I'm saying that men can't go. That's not just a girl job. Fourth point. Praise Jesus for his sacrifice. Praise Jesus for his sacrifice. We look at verse 28 one more time. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. As a ransom for many. I think it would be tragic if we let this passage go by without stopping to just make a point here to show how similar this is to the first point. Point one, we were called to praise Jesus for walking to the cross. Here Jesus tells you exactly what he's going to do when he's at the cross. His beautiful work. And we should worship Jesus for it. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. 
The word for ransom is a word for the price that has to be paid to purchase the freedom for a slave. Jesus gave his life in order to pay the price to purchase people for God. Now be careful. Don't confuse a modern understanding of the word ransom here with what we're talking about. When we think of ransom today, what do you think of? Absolutely, right? We think of a funky Hollywood movie where there's kidnapping and someone's gone and there's a ransom note. And the criminal demands payment from the innocent. That has nothing to do with the concept of ransom here. Here's what we're looking at. A sufficient payment is made to rescue a person from destruction by purchasing that person for God. Now, to whom was this ransom paid? There's a mistaken older view. It really got popular in the 20th century. Jesus died to pay a ransom to the devil to take people from him for God. Scripture does not ever present us as the property of Satan in that way. The proper understanding is far more amazing than that. Jesus ransomed, if you're saved, you for God, people for God, many for God, by paying the price for your sin against God. And if Jesus paid the price for our sin against God, who did he, who did he pay it to? If you sinned against God, who do you owe? God. So here's the better understanding. What's the cost of your sin against God? You owe an infinite debt to the Lord for violating the Lord's holy perfection. By the way, stop, 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 stop. You think, yes, I know that, and you're not impressed. You owe an infinite debt to God because you sinned against Him. It should cost you forever in hell to make up for the wrongs that you've done and the good things you failed to do. It should cost forever. If you don't buy that, you're missing the gospel. The cost then to redeem you, to rescue you from having to pay that debt, has to be infinite. It has to be that same level of infinity that you owe God. And only the infinitely worthy, holy Son of God could pay that price. And Jesus, in his suffering and death on the cross, perfectly provided the payment not only for one person, but for many, he says. The picture is not that we've been taken captive by some evil third party who demands payment. The picture is that we, in our sin and rebellion, have earned against ourselves the justice of God. And Jesus came to give his life to buy us out of the condemnation we deserve and to place us into the family of God as his rescued and even adopted children. Friends, this is the good news. And it's truly marvelous. Jesus walked willingly to the cross to sacrifice himself to purchase us, buying us back from our evil 
and winning for us the mercy of the Lord. Let's thank him and praise Jesus for his sacrifice. And as we pull back from this scene, let's see the overarching message that the Lord keeps placing before us. For three weeks now, God has challenged us to see that greatness is not found in you putting yourself forward, but in our willingness to to lower ourselves and to serve others. Greatness is found in living like Jesus once you're under his grace, sacrificially giving of yourself for the good of others. And we thank God for his grace because Jesus took on himself our punishment and ransomed us to life. Jesus bought you. Isn't that cool? Believe in Jesus. Praise Jesus. Live sacrificially. For the glory of Jesus. Let's bow together and let's pray.